In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. You know, Epiphany, the season of light, in one way is a time in the church year where, where a, um, a strange and, dare I say, countercultural kind of, bear with me, passivity is modeled, uh, is patterned in us. When it's all said and done, the Christian life consists of something um, that we really cannot abide despite its salvific power, and, and it's this. We are a listening, receiving, and illumined people. It is, after all, uh, Satan, no less, who transforms himself into an angel of light. He is his own light apart from God in rebellion and disobedience to the Lord. In my book, the lovely little hymn, uh, this little light of mine, uh, should properly run. Uh, I don't think this would work in terms of singing, so I won't try. But it should go something like this. Instead of this little light of mine, be like... This little light of yours shines even despite my besetting proclivities and ingrained tendency to quench, dim, and squelch it. This little light of yours. I don't know. It's the what do you do with ingrained tendency to quench, dim, and squelch? That's hard to sort of rhyme. I don't think it would sell in Sunday school, uh, though it should because it's actually the greatest news we've ever heard. Epiphany reminds us that we place our, our trust in Christ alone, or Jesus plus nothing equals everything, as the bumper sticker has it, illumined by word and sacrament shining upon us from outside ourselves. God's inbreaking love comes to us again and again and again in our addiction to securing our good standing with God by our own efforts, uh, essentially with, without God, or only when we're in a pinch, that whole addiction slowly comes undone. We learn to live in faith and trust with open, empty, receiving, surrendered hands that his light, that his light, not our blazing headlamps, might illumine us and that we might be that received light for our neighbor. The done, finished, accomplished, once and for all truth of being made right with God and of God's ongoing sanctification in this life and the next by the Holy Spirit as entirely God's work in us starts to dawn on us. Starts to dawn on us from like a, like a day spring from on high or a morning star rising in our hearts. And we say, what, what, what prodigal grace how astounding that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that he covers, clothes, blankets us with his righteousness rather than some hyperactive, desperately performed righteousness 
of our own. Nothing to earn, nothing to gain. Grace abounds and we're freed to simply love our neighbor in humble acts of unmagnificent service. Nothing worse, nothing more repugnant, actually, <laughs> for uh, a grabby group of sinners, uh, and by that I mean all of humanity, um, who want to take credit for apparent glimmers of holiness and to heroically climb their Tower of Babel way to God than to hear it's all God's work in us so that none can boast. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, says Paul. It is the gift, the gift of God, not the result of works so that none may boast. And so, with the word of the Lord rare in those days, and visions not widespread. We find Samuel bedded down next to the ark, the tangible, visible, sacramental sign of God's presence that comes to us, that calls from outside ourselves. Israel's decrepitude and disobedience is summed up in dim-eyed old Eli, who's let his naughty sons run amok. They're being unfaithful to their wives, taking, if you can believe it, the choicest meats meant for sacrifice for their own enjoyment in the backyard barbecue. And yet, and yet, the God of the promise who rescued Israel from Egypt, led them through the Red Sea, rained down provision in the wilderness with manna, quail, and water from the rock. The God of the promise is still present, active, working, calling, interrupting, drawing new life from dead ends, fashioning for God's self a people who might, by his received light, be that light for others. But it all starts, doesn't it, in a mournful, hopeless, dead place where self-centeredness rules the day. Stubborn, recalcit recalcitrant willfulness to do it our way is actually judged and put to death so that the new thing God is doing can take place. In, in Eli, we have our true situation. Sinners who by their own efforts cannot fulfill the law. The law accuses us, reveals our sin, and kills us. The law strips us of our precious self-righteousness and shows us of our need for someone other than ourselves to save us. The law shows us we are dead in our sins and that the wages of sin is death. A guttering lamp of the Lord perceived only dimly by the failing eyes of a broken-down nepotistic priest. The law shows us our need to receive something from 
outside of ourselves, the unconditional free grace and mercy to all in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He and only he can fulfill the law. He and only he is the paschal lamb. He and only he is the righteousness of God who pays the debt. I know, I know, Episcopalians all hate that language. Pays the debt of sin and opens the way of true life in him. In Eli, we have judgment, don't we? And crucifixion. In Samuel, promise and resurrection. We are both at once. And this dying and rising happens over and over and over, like we were talking about in adult formation today. Happens daily. It happens hourly, minute by minute and moment by moment. So we're called to a kind of receptivity, a receptive posture that our friend Martin Luther, or at least my friend, uh, calls passive righteousness. Passive righteousness. It's terrible. It's disgusting. It's improper and unseemly. What about all my assertiveness training classes? and the mountain of self-help books that I've got stacked up by my bedside. Jesus' righteousness in which we find ourselves made righteous takes the wind right out of the sails of our need to earn, win, gain, climb ourselves to a righteousness that only God in Christ through the Holy Spirit can pour upon us and that he's doing right now. It's God's righteousness poured out into our cupped, quivering, empty, needy, poor, little hands as gift to be received rather than holiness project to be frantically executed well or badly. If it's all on us, we either do it well, and we get proud of ourselves. Well done, Tyler. Or we do badly. Tyler, what have you done? Again? And in each case, guess what? In each case, it's us and our efforts utterly apart from God upon which our salvation hangs. That is a terrifying place to live from, if we can even call that living. Passive righteousness looks a lot like what Samuel undergoes, sacked out in the Holy of Holies. It begins not with Samuel, of course. He's flat on his back, dead, asleep, for all intents and purposes. But it begins with God's interruption into dimming grimness corruption and despair. Samuel, Samuel. Out of darkness a light shines, illumines us, self-proclaimed luminaries, breaks in and upon us. And what is, what is Samuel's response? A simple, here I am, 
for you called me. Like Abraham, like Jacob, like Moses at the burning bush, Isaiah, Mary at the Annunciation, Ananias in Acts. What is modeled is a simple allowing of ourselves to be raised, illumined, awakened, lifted, provisioned, and sent, sent, of course, in the power of the Holy Spirit to our neighbor in love. We're here. We're listening. Confident that God still speaks here, I am. Speak, for your servant is listening. God is a loving reality we undergo through a kind of passive reception rather than a prize to win, rather than an interior state to be cultivated. Sorry, contemplatives. Some consciousness to be attained, an emotion to feel. We simply let ourselves be loved. And how, how desperately we would like not to have to undergo God, <laughs> a process that is, after all, <clears throat> totally out of our control like the rest of our life. How desperately we would like to chart our way through the various maps of the spiritual life. You know, whether it's steady progress through a series of rooms in a mansion, like Teresa of Avila, a journey to the celestial city with John Bunyan, or clambering up the rungs of a ladder with John Climacus, We want the chart. We want to measure. We want to know where we are and be in control of it. And how desperately, actually, the church, in its own inability to undergo God, will gladly give us, won't it? A ladder to climb and a grade on our progress. Well, you're about here. You need to get to there. How desperately we yearn for a little patch of ground Tyler can call Tyler's own and cultivate for myself with Jean-Jacques Rousseau. But of course, part of us knows better, doesn't it? And we say with Abraham Kuyper, there is actually Tyler not a single square inch in the whole domain of human existence, in the entire universe over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Nothing can separate us from his presence, his lordship, his sovereignty, his loving kindness. We are already children of God now. Our bodies indwelt by the Holy Spirit are already God's temple. We don't make ourselves holy, but are made holy in the process of undergoing God, of trusting Christ alone. 
There is no one, there is one who is righteous, and, and I hate to break it to you, it's not me and it's not you. There is one who is righteous. We don't join ourselves to, or as the epistle has it, fornicate with our ideas about a confected and performed holiness apart from God that we can do well or badly. Instead, we unite ourselves to the Lord who has united himself with us and we become one spirit with him. We let ourselves be loved into loving others and that's the good news after we've gotten over our rather predictable hissy fit of wanting to have a shred of control over the process. That ladder that Nathaniel sees not another way for you or I to climb our way, ice axe in hand, mighty pioneer to the holiness of God. No. Siblings in Christ, Jesus is the ladder. Jesus is the ladder. He comes down it in order to free us and draw us lovingly, mercifully, with some, yes, refining along the way, into the divine life. Greater things than these indeed. I don't know if it's perhaps my age or my disposition or the result of being a recent guest at uh, L'Hotel Unsman. Uh, but I've been pondering, actually, uh, my own uh, inevitable end in good Benedictine fashion. And I came across this little passage from the Swiss Reformed theologian Karl Barth, called, if you remember, the greatest theologian since Aquinas, by Pius XII, by a Catholic, <laughs> called a Reformed theologian the greatest theologian since Aquinas, so we should listen. But Bart had a keen sense, despite his once ever, perhaps, brilliance, he had a keen sense that he was a sinner, just like the rest of us. Not one is righteous, no one has understanding, no one seeks the Lord, as Paul says. And that we are justified by his grace, as gift, through Jesus Christ. And in the very last week of his life, in shaky hand, he wrote this to a, to a friend. He was asking him, what's going to happen after you die? And Bart, being Bart, gives this beautifully honest, straightforward and humble response to his friend. He says, I shall be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ in and with my whole being, with all the real good and real evil that I have thought, said, and done, with all the bitterness that I have suffered and all the beauty that I have enjoyed. There I shall only be able to stand as a failure that I doubtless was in all things. But, but by virtue of his promise, 
stand as justified or forgiven sinner, a saintly sinner. And as that, I will, I will be able to stand, not on his own merit, but on Christ's. God comes to us here and now in the person and work of Jesus, not to reward the rewardable, not to improve the improvable, or to make already good people a little better. Comes to save sinners like me and you by his own act of free grace. This is his astounding quid that has no quo. Quid no quo. It's enough, I think, to make your ears tingle and your heart sing. Here I am. Here I am, Lord, your servant is listening flat on their back. Here we are, Lord, your church is listening flat on its back. Illumine us, for our eyes have grown dim. Break upon us, day spring from on high, for the lamp is low. Stand us up in the sweet assurance of, of your eternal promise. Stand us up in your loving grace, received and, yes, undergone. Apart from all works of whatever law we've subtly reinvented for ourselves. And may we, dear Lord, illumined by your word and sacraments, shine. Shine with the radiance of Christ's glory for our neighbor. Amen.